And as we were preparing for Palm Sunday and Easter next Sunday, uh, thought about doing the traditional triumphal entry, but then as we were going through Mark, just thought this was such a good text uh, to tie into what this day historically means for the church. And so we're going to continue through Mark chapter 3, and uh, with your eyes on the page, I'll read through this, we'll preach it, and then we'll respond to it. It says, And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. This is the word of the Lord. As we pause in this week leading up, Holy Week, leading up to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there might be a mixture, a cocktail, if you will, of all sorts of different feelings. Maybe one of anticipation, because this is maybe the highest point in the, the life and year of the Christian calendar, but it also might be full of other emotions, worry and anxiety, a full capacity, the demands of life. Life is full of demands. It's full of stuff. And as Christians, I don't know if you can resonate with this, perhaps you can resonate with this as Christians, this might seem even more demanding because not only is life full of demands, but we're approaching those demands from a particular lens. For some of us, that lens means, gosh, I need to do this like a Christian. I need to be faithful. I need to be a good person. I need to not mess up. I need to be spiritually successful. And demands are flooding with demands on top of demands on top of demands. And I hope that this passage gives you a sense of a deep-rooted groundedness in true joy and peace. Not only because of what Jesus is about to say, but because Jesus too faced demands. It was last week that we read in that passage before this that he told his disciples to have a boat ready because of the crowd, lest they crushed him. We saw that picture of a mob coming around Jesus, desiring their needs to be met, and he healed many. And all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him, verse 9 and 10. Jesus faced demands. And as followers of Jesus, we know that we're going we're gonna to have some work to do. We're going to have walls that we're facing. We're ha- going to have needs and demands surrounding us on all sides. And perhaps you're asking this question, how do I navigate that? How do I face the needs and the demands of life? Maybe you're actually asking, how do I survive what I'm facing? And I hope that these three things that emerge from these two short verses give you a sense of hope, and not just hope, but anticipation for wonderful things. The first thing that I hope that you find here in verse 13 is that Jesus calls us first to himself. Mark chapter 3, verse 13, it says, he went up on a mountain And he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Reading this verse, even as I'm looking at the skyline, the Santa Ynez Mountains, just picturing Jesus, just pulling a few of you off off with himself, just on a mountain, calling to those whom he desired, and they came to him. 
And here's that picture of Jesus, just that old-fashioned call of Jesus on disciples to follow him in the demands of the moment, in the turmoil of the moment, in the confusion and the anxiety and the worry in the middle of all of that chaos and noise, that old-fashioned call of Jesus on you. Just come with me. Let's go take a break. I'm going to take you up on a mountain. Let's spend some time together. And inevitably, somebody like me sees a call like this and asks, to do what? I've had friends throughout my life try to get me into hiking, and it's never been successful. Because I don't understand that these types of things where you're moving to just for the sake of moving. I always ask, like, for what? Like, we're hiking to what? To a tri-tip sandwich? or to a beautiful view, I can understand that. But hiking for the purpose of hiking, I just don't get it. And I see these calls, and perhaps you do too, of being called to follow Jesus. And maybe the first question you're asking is to do what? To accomplish what? What is the goal? And even now, maybe you're filling in those spaces with your own answers. Well, you know, some of you might say, maybe it's to make disciples. The goal of following Jesus is to make disciples. Others would say, the goal of following Jesus is to minister to the lost or to the hurting or to each other. Maybe some of you would say it's to live a good life or to live a moral life. Others might say it's to do the right thing or to be changed and transformed. Someone might quote the golden rule. And You know, all of these examples are true components of the Christian life. But it could be argued that they're not the truest thing about you. They flow out of what is true about you, but they're not the truest thing. They're not, as we might say, your purpose as a Christian, though they will flow out of your purpose. What we see in the next verse is one of the most stunning, I think, one of the most stunning seven-word phrases I've read in the Bible where Jesus doesn't just call us to himself, but he then redirects our purpose. Listen to this. It says in verse 14, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. Here's the seven words. So that they might be with him. There's the redirecting of human purpose right there. So that they might be with him. What if I took my original question a step deeper and asked, what would you say God's purpose for you was? What's your purpose in life? What's God's purpose for you? If you were to ask me that, depending on the season in my life, at one point I might have said to forgive my sins or to make things right, to make me right with God satisfying the wrath of God. Some of us might say to fix us, to fix what is broken. Others might say to change the world or to be better people. Some might say our purpose is to make a difference. Some might say it's to love people, to love them well. Again, all beautiful, true things. But is that the truest thing about you? Notice how sometimes our answers to this, to the question of purpose, are very similar to the answer that we had for our goals in life. It's to do something, 
We are a doing-oriented society. It's very difficult for me, Chris Lazo, to think of myself apart from what I can do or accomplish. You ever feel that way? My worth at times is intricately tied to what I've done or what I think I'm able to do. And that's just the society in which we live, right? That's the water in which we swim, a doing-oriented society. And yet in less than a verse, Jesus completely changes our framework. He doesn't just call us to follow him. He also redirects our purpose by giving us a different framework. God's purpose for you is not first and primarily to do stuff, although that will come later. It says he appointed the 12, and right after that it says, so that they might be with him. God's purpose for you is to be with God. His calling on your life right now in this moment and for all of eternity is to be with him in deep, loving communion. Do you believe that? We live in a society that judges our worth based on what we are able to do. The God of the universe comes along and the first thing that he says to the disciples that he would appoint to change the world is, first order of business, I want you to be with me. I want you to spend time with me. I want you to slow down a little bit and watch how I do it. Watch how I live my life. Talk to me. Pray with me. Worship with me. Observe me. Spend time with me. Fall in love with me. Our primary calling as Christians is to be in Christ and with Christ. Jesus would say this exact thing in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 3, when he described eternal life. Many of us have maybe grown up with that passage that says that God gave his only begotten son. He loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. When I was a kid, I always thought that that meant I would live forever. Eternal life, like quantity of years, which is true. But it's not by itself good news, right? Especially if you have a terrible life. If you've had a hard life, the last thing you want to do is live a million years. I'm like, Lord, take me out at 100. I can only handle so much of this sometimes. Jesus actually takes us a little bit deeper by explaining the depth of what the eternal kind of life looks like in John chapter 17. It's not just quantity of years, it's quality of years. Listen to this. And this is eternal life, Jesus says that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What does it mean for God to save people into eternal life? It means loving, eternal, deep communion with the Father through his Son. That's what you were saved for. And this relationship flows out of God's nature. This was what God was doing before humanity even existed in the garden. 
in the first stages of Genesis, we see God just living and breathing creative, joyful love and energy. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They didn't create us because they had a deficit in their relationship. They created it to share. And so they create Adam and Eve. And in that first scene, we see them walking with them in the cool of the garden. This was always how it was supposed to be. Sin gets in the way. Evil separates us from God. And what does he do? He sends his son to bring us back to him. This all flows out of his nature. Now, at this point, you might be saying, okay, I get it. Our calling in life is deep, loving communion with God. But what about the needs in the world? What about all the stuff that's broken in the world? Stuff that's broken in my home, stuff that's broken in my life. These needs don't just disappear. And we kind of saw that last week in the, in the text before this, where Jesus is faced with unbelievable needs. We saw that picture where large crowds were literally crushing him on all sides. Sick people wanting to reach out and touch him. Demons making a scene. And Jesus is in the middle of that, not escaping, but engaging in the needs of the moment. He had a reputation for miracles. He healed many people that day. Jesus was faced with needs, and he did engage them. And as followers of Jesus, we will be called to that too. We'll always be faced with needs, and Jesus will be calling us to meet those needs by the power of the gospel. In fact, we see it in this passage. My first point is that Jesus calls us to himself. The second point is that Jesus redirects our purpose. But third, Jesus commissions us to do what he did. We see this in verse 14 and 15. It says, he appointed 12 that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, when Mark says preach, he's not speaking about like this, what I'm doing, like you need to have a stage and a pulpit to preach. It's the same word described in Mark chapter 1, I believe it's verse 14 or verse four, uh, 17, where it says that Jesus went around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's talking about it. He's calling other people to the greatest news that they'll ever hear. And Jesus isn't just doing that. He's sending his people out. He's sending his disciples out, sending you out to do the same, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom to your neighbor, to your coworker, to your nephew, to your cousin, to your uncle, to your grandpa, to your enemies. And to have authority to cast out demons, it says. If he calls us in one sense to proclaim the kingdom, the casting out of demons is like a display of the kingdom. And so you see in a very two-step, very simple, beautiful way that Mark puts the Christian life of discipleship is one, we're to proclaim the kingdom. Two, we're to display the kingdom. We talk about it, we live it. Very simple. We will be doing these things with him and for him. In fact, I love that passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, you are God's masterpiece. That Greek word poema, that word where we get the, word, uh, the, the English word poem, you are, you are his artwork. You are what he created out of his creative uh, ingenuity and love. 
And he has created us, Paul goes on to say, anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. I love this picture because it's a picture of God not saying, okay, I saved you from your sin. Now I'm going to send you back into the back row, into the corner so that you don't break my stuff. I will save the world. That is not the heart of God. He's like, gosh, hop in the front seat with me as we proclaim and display the kingdom to a broken, hurting world. You're going to ride shotgun with me. And we're going to cruise through the coastlands and make much of Jesus Christ. And I want you to be a part of that. Good things that he planned long ago for us to walk in. And so, yes, Jesus commissions us to get our hands dirty, to put our hand to the plow, to push back the forces of evil, to proclaim the goodness of God's kingdom, and to display his love. But before we're sent out by him, we're called to be with him. Our first and primary calling is intimacy with God. I want to be careful when I say this because I'm, I'm not saying that we nourish ourselves and find fuel by being lazy and doing nothing but rather by filling our souls on Christ before engaging in mission. Hey, Tristan. <laughs> I love this boy. Just <clears throat> wanting a front row seat. We have, a, we have a saying at Reality. It's called, ministry flows from intimacy. And it's this idea that before we can engage in the work of God, we must be fueled by supernatural power. It really comes from this idea of what we see Jesus doing before we're sent out to do the work of the kingdom. We must be with Christ, fueled to do his work. Ministry flows from intimacy with Christ. Now, when I say ministry, I'm not talking about vocational ministry, like the worst work of pastors and ministers. I'm saying that every single one of you is an ambassador of God's kingdom. You are, in that sense, a minister. Teachers, janitors, volunteers, engineers, chemists, students in college and high school and junior high, singles, spouses, parents... All of these and many others are spheres of influence by which you are placed by God himself, ordained to be by God himself to participate in the kingdom of God. You are where you are for a reason. And it's a battle. And the fuel we need must come from a deep reservoir that's able to sustain us. Without it, we will burn out. We'll start defaulting to religion, hoping that if we do enough and we're busy enough and we're active enough, it will somehow sustain us. But ministry flows from intimacy. Before God calls you to work for him, he calls you to be with him and to do this over and over and over and over, not just when you first got born again. And the danger, I think, for us, for, for believers is getting the cart before the horse, so to speak. 
It's thinking in our minds, if I can borrow that analogy, that intimacy flows from ministry. Or if I can put it another way, that being close to God will come from being busy for God. That if I do enough, if I volunteer enough, if I serve enough, if I'm active enough, if I'm busy enough, it will somehow fill that void and bring me closer to God. If I'm busy for God, I will become closer to God. And of course, this doesn't just affect our relationship with God. We can carry this into our relationships, into our marriages, into our friendships. If I just bring home the bacon, if I just work really hard, if I'm just successful at my job, my family will be, will be successful too. If I just do my part and if I'm active and I'm, uh, I'm busy, my relationships will thrive. Of course, on some level, we might know that that's absolutely the opposite in some of our dearest relationships. We need emotional connection. We need to be close. We need to be intimate with our kids, with our friends, with each other. And if it's true for that, how much more true would it be of us and God? The disciples often needed to be reminded of this. In Mark chapter 6, verse 30 through 31, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. They were getting busy. And he said to them, come away by yourself to a desolate place and rest for a while. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to you right now? Come away by yourself to a desolate place and rest for a while. He would go on to say more vividly in another place in John chapter 15, abide in me and I in you. Abide in me. That means to remain or to stay a while, to pause. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. How many of you are tired right now and you need to hear the words of Jesus telling you, hey, come away by yourself to a desolate place and abide in me for a while. I hope that the words of Jesus give you the permission that you need today to do just that. If I can summarize what I believe this text is teaching us, it's that we are called to be engaged in the mission of God for his glory and for the love of all people. But that mission must come as a direct result of a soul that has been regularly nourished by the presence of God. The original question at the beginning was, how do we survive the demands of this life as, as followers of Jesus? But I want to take it up a notch because I don't believe that the calling on your life is to survive anything. I believe that Jesus' calling on your life is to thrive in the face of these demands. Not just to get by, but to thrive. And I'm not just saying that. I hear words like Jesus would say in John 7, whoever believes in me out of their innermost being will flow rivers of living water. 
I don't know what that means, that metaphor, but I think it means a little bit more than surviving. Rivers of living water looks to me like thriving. That's Jesus' promise to you. He would also say in another place, all you who are burdened and weary and heavy laden, come to me and find rest for your souls. Watch how I do it. Learn from me. Take my way of doing things upon you and you will find rest for your souls for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. While many of us are tired and worn out, I hope that the invitation of Jesus on you during this Palm Sunday observance comes as a welcome invitation that you do not need to do anything to make Christ love you. You may feel that about everybody else in your life, but not Jesus. Jesus has already died and risen from the dead out of his love for you. His invitation for you today is just come to him. This is what you were made for. This is what your soul needs. This is what your family needs. This is what your children need. This is what your fellow college students need. This is what your friends need. This is what your coworkers need. This is what you need. And this is what I want to invite us back into. As I wrap up and I want to ask Robert and the rest of the team to come up here, I want to remind us that today is Palm Sunday. The day that the church annually celebrates what is called the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. And the scene describes it in this way. They brought a colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting. Imagine the scene, everybody. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yes! Yes! There he is! The long-awaited Savior. The long-awaited Messiah. Everything our hearts were searching for. Everything that our city has needed. Everything that the world has been breaking over. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This is a scene of a broken population, leaping for joy and anticipation because they have seen the answer of God to a hurting and broken world amidst many idols and many counterfeits. And their response is, I hope, will be our response. Prepare a way for this guy. Prepare a way for him. They prepared a way for the Lord in their city 2,000 years ago. May we prepare a way for the Lord this morning as well. You may ask yourself, well, how do we do that? As we sing and respond through, with our song and words, ask yourself these two questions. Where in my life do I need to slow down right now? And two, where in my life can I reconnect with Jesus? Where can I slow down? Where can I reconnect? Let's respond in song. At the end of this song, I'll come up and lead us in communion. Someone will come out uh, passing out the elements. 
And we will respond in that way. But for the next few minutes, let's ask Jesus these questions, knowing that he loves you so much, he came for you, and he's still coming for you.